really quick, if you're like me and you're sweating it uh, all the way up till the end, and it's, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and then we say, thanks be to God. Yes, so. <clears throat> Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. We're getting more solid with the thanks be to God response. Getting all high church in here. It's pretty cool. Just want to remind you guys, uh, the, the practice of sermon listening, uh, open yourselves now to loving dialogue with God. This is more than just information. It's encounter. The Sunday gathering should be encounter. You should come with expectation for transformation in a moment where the Spirit speaks to you through the text or through a word or through an illustration. So open yourselves in a posture now of dialogue with your God. He may or may not make clear what he wants to say. He may remain clouded. He may remain, remain quiet. Our responsibility is to be available in the time of teachings. Yes? Let's pray. Father, we worship you and we ask God as we continue to make our way in this meditation on flesh and spirit that you would empower and bring revival and renewal in each of us as individuals, little candles that become fires and flame in workplaces and families and homes and marriages and relationships and friendships and classrooms. I can't teach unless you teach. They can't hear unless you open deaf ears. We can't see unless you open our eyes. And with blind Bartimaeus, we cry out, have mercy on us, Jesus. Father, with the Syrophoenician woman, we bow before you and say, crumbs. We'll take crumbs of your presence today. Anything, Lord. A drop of the Holy Spirit. A moment of mercy. Something to sustain and strengthen. To give hope and vision that we would be a people aflame. Aflame with heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to our third session in our February meditations. Look away. Look towards Look away from the world to the kingdom of God all through January. Look away from the flesh to the spirit all through February. We're fasting, as I already mentioned, all through February. And look away from the devil to Jesus all through March. That's going to be a really fun month for us. And then on to the book of Colossians in uh, April and May. And then we're off to the, the minor prophets through the summer. So we've got quite a roundup. And then uh, Sermon on the Mount this fall. It's, it's a great time to be in the Bible here at Neighbors Church. So just by way of review where we find ourselves this morning, flesh, flesh, especially in the mind of St. Paul, is a technical term. It's a shorthand for describing the part of our being that goes on living in rebellion against God, even though we've committed our lives to him and we're trying to follow Jesus. The flesh, biblically speaking, is governed by inborn sin and rebellion against God. It is corrupted. The flesh is incapable of submitting to God. Paul actually says the flesh is hostile to God. The flesh is driven along by the inertia of a lifetime of broken patterns, self-destructive habits, wounds, traumas, memories, pursuits of the wrong things in the wrong way, and deceived beliefs. For the Christian in here in this room this morning, 
there are now two yous in conflict with each other. There's the old you, the old man, that's the language of Paul in Colossians, and the new you, an entirely new creation, language of Paul in 2 Corinthians, and that new creation's deepest desires are aligned with God. There is a you that is fully you, fully human, a perfect you, a just as Jesus was perfect you that exists in reality right now where you're seated. Every moment, we have the choice to be moved by the inertia of the flesh and let its disordered desires rule and define our lives, or to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is an active choice of resistance on our part, but results in surrender and rest and trust in our process. Now, this flesh you is gnarly, as we talked about last week. Remember Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. The flesh you is discontent, dangerous, and self-destructive. The spirit you is aligned in body and belief with the good intentions of a good father for our greatest happiness and highest flourishing. For most of us in this room, if you've been in the Christian game for any amount of time, you're probably here because you've realized that living according to the flesh doesn't bring flourishing. Most people don't show up to church on Sunday morning because everything's just going dandy in life. Most of us are here because we've experienced the frustration and the devastation of living according to disordered desires. We've shown up here this morning dissatisfied, disoriented, confused, and broken by our own decisions. And so we've come looking for a better way, looking away from the flesh, looking toward the spirit, and we are compelled by Paul's vision of a better, more beautiful, true existence. Worded in this way, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) So here's the driving question to take us through our time together this morning. How, how, how can we bear this type of fruit? How can we live a life full of love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? How can we actually practically, concretely live this way? And along with the primary questions like those comes that cascade of attendant questions. Hey, if we're truly a new creation, why don't I look like it and feel like it? If this is who we truly are as born-again Christians, how come the lusty, impatient, covetous, discontent, angry, factious, impulsive part of us has so much sway and say in our day-in, day-out experiences? Now, to set this up and to fast-forward us a little bit to the end of the teaching, if you're asking these types of questions this morning, I want to assure you, you are actually further along in your progression towards that life that we read in that list than you know. As we're going to see in our teaching this morning, life in the Spirit does not look like what we think it looks like on the whole. The mere desire for life in the Spirit. Encounter this morning, friends. If you feel in your body a compulsion, I want that. I want life in the Spirit. No matter the degree to which we actually find ourselves, quote-unquote, experiencing life in the Spirit, the mere desire to want to be in the Spirit is a mark that the Holy Spirit is working, is living, is bringing you to completion. If we are compelled by a vision of a better and truer self, that's a mark of the life in the Spirit. If we long this morning in some measure to be different, that is actually your soul responding to the Spirit right now, so we're going to start with the most foundational factor for living in the Spirit. And I get to just preach old school this 
old school gospel this morning. So it may get a little bit excited in here, okay? I want some amens. I want some yeah. I want some uh uh-huh. I want all of it. Life in the Spirit is an object of reality that we are learning to walk in subjectively. This is Paul's primary point from our teaching text in Romans this morning. I'll read it again. And these passages have once again begun to restore a fire in my bosom. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That little Greek transitive there, that therefore in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, points us back to seven chapters of some of the most magisterial theology on the planet ever in the history of humanity. Seven chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has been detailing the incredibly good news that God saves us, heals us, adopts us, reconciles with us, delivers us, frees us, forgives us, accepts us, and loves us apart from any effort that we exert. Apart from any transformation that we can muster in our own strength, God does these things in Christ for us fully and completely and totally. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No matter where we find ourselves in our seats this morning, ashamed or afraid, humiliated or prideful, doubt-filled or anxious, lusty or impulsive, angry or depressed, covetous or content, at the bottom of the barrel, great or small in the eyes of society, high or low on the social hierarchy, poor or rich, powerful or weak, for the soul this morning who has said and is saying right now, Jesus, my life is yours. And even for the soul who is struggling right now to say, Jesus, I want my life to be yours. And even for the soul who has said, I want my life to be yours, and is struggling to believe that they've meant what they've said when they said, I want my life to be yours, there is no condemnation for any wrong belief, any behavior, any worldly distraction, any fleshy desire. None. Breathe with me. No condemnation right now. You are so freed and loved perfectly where you are seated, no matter your state. Jesus, I want this. This reality, this no condemnation reality, it is an objective, unchanging reality. And this, friends, is what we traditionally have called the gospel, the good news of life in the kingdom of heaven as a gift that has been given to us, and we have received it as newly adopted and transformed children of God, apart from our efforts, apart from our striving. Christian theology teaches that you and I as Christians have been supernaturally and miraculously placed in Jesus Christ. Again, that's technical shorthand in the language of Paul for salvation. We are now somehow mysteriously in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ mysteriously now indwells us. April and May is the book of Colossians. We're just going to meditate on that for eight weeks straight in Paul's words. What once was the default relational and operational and experiential aspect of our lives, what Paul calls sin and death, has been now replaced with the spirit and life. So from our teaching text this morning, back to Romans chapter 8, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Said in other words, Jesus absorbed into his flesh our insecurities, our humiliations, our failings, our mistakes. 
Jesus absorbed into his flesh our hostility, our perversion, our rebellion, our sin. And we, in turn, absorbed into our being, mysteriously and miraculously, his security, his humility, his gentleness, his victory over temptation, his purity, his perfections, and his sinlessness before God the Father. In the ancient language of the theologians of the Reformation, the double imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. That's some fun stuff, isn't it? He took our sin and imputed, put into us, gave us his righteousness before the Father. And we don't work for this. We don't earn this. It's an objective reality that does not change whether we subjectively feel it this morning or not. We are in Christ and he is in us. Therefore, we are uncondemnable. Uncondemnable. The relational, operational, experiential undercurrent of our existence as Christians is the law of the Spirit who gives life. Now, this is the issue. Let's get to the rub, to the crux here. The issue is subjectively in our experience and feelings, and even in our thoughts and to, to some degree, this uncondemnable life in the spirit reality, it's often clouded by our doubts. It is often clouded and polluted by our ongoing flesh patterns. It's deafened by the crowds and the cacophony of the world around us, despite its unchanging existence. Think of it like this. It's like the sun. This uncondemnable reality, it is like the sun. The earth's rotation may take the sun out of sight, but it is still burning hot, even though the night can be dark and cold and long. Clouds, which we never have here in San Diego, but suddenly we have over this last year, may cloak the sun's brightness to some degree, but behind those clouds, it is bright and clear all the time beyond our subjective embodied experience. You and I are in the Spirit right now as much as we will ever be, as much as the sun is burning right now behind those clouds, whether we see it in its fullness or not. All of this is good news, and it is information going into our brains, but transformation requires experience, requires encounter. This, what I'm sharing with you, the gospel is objective truth, which we need, but we equally need subjective experience of these truths. We like to say here that we got to get our beliefs into our bodies, our theology into our biology. The clouds, in other words, need to part. The earth needs to turn on its axis so that we can see and feel the sun again if any real transformation or growth is going to happen in us. Now, Jonathan Edwards who many consider to be the greatest philosopher and theologian the United States has ever produced. He had this very helpful illustration on the Christian's need for knowing objective truth, the gospel that never changes, of life in the spirit that never changes, but also the necessity of a maturing Christian subjectively experiencing that reality in their bodies. He used the illustration of, of honey. Imagine a person who has seen honey, felt honey, smelt honey, and heard others describe honey, but they've never actually tasted honey themselves. Now, they'd be very good at describing honey as it's golden, it's gooey, it has a sort of soft tone smell, and from what I've heard, others have said it's sweet. But I'm not able to tell you what sweet is because I've never had this subjective experience or sense of what sweet actually tastes like. And so this person, they know honey, but they don't really experientially know honey without tasting it. In fact, they cannot know the truest core thing about honey, its sweetness, while knowing so much about honey. Edward said, it's one thing to know objectively that we are in the spirit in our heads, but until this room tastes this goodness until we subjectively know it in our bodies and it produces peace that surpasses understanding. And we taste it with our spiritual buds 
and it lights off songs of praise alongside the saints who reign in kingdom come. Until this sweetness and this objective reality is fully eaten into our bodies, then we do not know fully as we ought and can, and we will not be transformed. So there's two types of Christians that Edwards guides to maturity here. The first, and this Christian doesn't exist. This Christian is becoming more and more rare. They used to be much more commonplace. But in a non-Christian culture, they're more rare. The first is the heady Christian. The heady Christian who has all the right theology, declares their belief in right doctrine, is committed to faithful Christian living, but has never emotionally, subjectively experienced the outpouring of that sweetness in their soul and been melted by it and said, that's what honey tastes like. Wow. The second Christian that Edwards calls to maturity is the, and this is the commonplace Christian within this modern moment, myself included, by the way, I throw myself into this camp, the Christian whose perspectives on God are governed only by what we feel and experience in the moment. So for example, if I wake up on the right side of the bed after a good night's sleep and I've been eating clean for an entire week, I experience, quote unquote, that morning, closeness to God. <laughs> when in fact, my biochemistry has just kind of rested in harmony that day. Take, for example, I wake up the next day on the wrong side of the bed, sleep-deprived, dopamine system overloaded by scrolling YouTube for four hours on end, inflamed with sugar and alcohol, and stressed by an over-busy calendar. All of a sudden, I don't feel God. Maybe I'm being punished. God's not there when, in fact, he is there fully. But my body, mind, soul, and neurochemistry are clouding his light. Both types of Christians are corrected and matured by Edwards. One needs to taste and if you find yourself this morning saying, I want that, that's life in the Spirit. I want to taste. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. That's life in the Spirit. Come alive to that sweetness. Long for it more deeply. Pray for it more fervently. The other needs to live into more completely the objective reality of God's burning sun, uncondemnability within us that does not change with our emotions and wonky neurochemistry. Christian formation, which is what we're all about around here. Transformation through Christian formation, the formation of our souls, is an objective and subjective reality. God intends through formation to shape and transform our patterns, our beliefs, our behaviors, our feelings, and our thoughts. All of this is entailed by living in the Spirit. This is what Paul is encompassing when he caps off this little paragraph here in Romans chapter 8 saying, do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The inertia of the flesh carries us away from the object objective truths of the sun burning. Subjectively, what the flesh does is it reduces our relationship to God and our disordered, wonky neurochemistry and our emotional experiences. Christian formation is the lifelong process of discerning disordered beliefs and desires and emotions. Christian formation slows the inertia of the flesh and those things, even bringing those things to a stop eventually so that the soul, heart, mind, and body can agree with and act on the deeper impulses and desires of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, we're just going to spend the remainder of our time exploring that crucial question. How does God, in partnership with our souls, actually do this? How does he actually do this? Two big ideas to focus on to take us to communion. The process and the practices. The process and the practices. Let me pause here for just a moment. Everybody with me? We all good? Everybody tracking with this? Any sense in the body of like, I want to taste the sweetness? Nod your head if yes. Yeah, that's the spirit. That's the moment. That's the encounter. It's so subtle. He's, he's so whispery. He's such a gentleman. He, he just, he's such, the Holy Spirit is such a gentleman. Pardon me, would you like an encounter? <laughs> to which we say, yes, Lord, I would. <laughs> 
And then he doesn't overwhelm us with waves of tears and uncontrollable falling out of our seats, although he might at some point, prayerfully, I would love that. He's a gentleman, and he's careful with us. And this process and these practices, they bring us into a space and place where he can whisper to us, I'm here, I'm for you, I've not left you. Living in the Spirit is a lifelong process that is both active and passive. We have an active part that we're playing in partnership with God and a passive part. That whole objective front part of this teaching, that whole objective part is done by him. As well, there are passive parts of our transformation that he brings to pass. On the one hand, passively, God has done everything necessary to fill us with the Spirit, to realign our desires, to strengthen our call to him in Christ. That is objective and unchanging. Actively, we must attune our awareness to these now new realities. And we do so by a process of practices, practices, sometimes called spiritual disciplines in the church generations gone by, means of grace from really ancient generations of the church, means of grace, practices. Christianity and all of its attending practices and liturgies and traditions, they are all designed to open the soul to what has already been given to us objectively in Jesus. We might think of the practices, coming to church on Sunday morning, singing songs, fasting, feast, all the practices that come to your mind, quiet times with Jesus, studying the Bible, communing, all these practices. Think of them like dials on the old school radio. Okay, we have a very young church. Do you guys know what a radio is where you have to like tune it in to frequencies? And I didn't say that patronizingly. I'm genuinely asking. You guys know what a radio is, right? I just want this illustration to work. Thank God. Okay, good. Oh, geez. I just destroyed my iPad. Oh. Yeah, my iPad just got slain in the spirit, Scotty said. Okay. Right. Back to the radio. Think of the practices like uh, the dials on our radio. God has already sent all of the music. The music is already blaring through the metaphorical airwaves. The music is 100% available for us to be listened to. But we have to tune into the right frequency. Otherwise, all we're going to be getting is fuzz. Most of us are inundated with fuzz from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. And we think fuzz is music. That's the silly thing about the flesh. We think the fuzz is great music. And it's just fuzz. So the study of theology, reading the spiritual giants of history, daily Bible reading, whether you're getting it or not in the moment, all forms of prayer, silence and evangelism, speech, solitude and community, fasting and feasting, service of the poor and Sabbath. These are all the dials by which we are dialing into the frequency of God and hearing the music. Note, we're not making the music with these practices. The music is there. We're trying to find our way into attuning the soul to hear it. The practices don't transform us. They make us available to the objective transformation that has already been given. The practices are what slow the inertia of the flesh, but because the flesh believes the fuzz is actually the music, it's very difficult to even want to turn the flesh away from the fuzzy music. Does that make sense? That's why you experience resistance to all of these things. It's like why when you're training, nobody wakes, well, there are the few select few like, I can't wait to get to the gym and just knock myself crazy in there. I'm training so hard. Most of us are like, I do not want to go to the gym. I want to eat donuts and watch Netflix. That's the flesh. But the spirit's like, I can't wait to get to the gym. But he whispers it politely. <clears throat> what these practices do is they reorient our attention to the, um, to, to, to the spirit and to the life that is present instead of sin and death. 
that we think is the music. Now, in a church like Neighbors, in the circle of churches that we run in, there's, there's a real danger here. Because the tendency for our flesh will be to take these beautiful practices and turn them into means of being a good Christian. I did my Sabbath. I'm a good Christian. I did my Bible reading. I'm a good Christian. I did my silence. I'm a really good Christian. This month of February, I'm fasting. <laughs> I'm a really good Christian. <laughs> Rather than the practices making us aware and yielded to the good Christ within us. There's a danger here that the practices become how we do Christianity right instead of the practices reorienting our lives around Jesus Christ, who's the only one who did right for us. The practices prepare us, and they open us. They create opportunity, but here's the key, and this is where faith and submission in the Christian life becomes so important. They create opportunity, but God chooses how and God chooses when he'll show up in our subjective experience. The sun is burning, and he chooses if the clouds are going to part or not. And we do not get to dictate that, no matter how loudly we yell. Our responsibility is never to make something subjectively happen. Our responsibility is to be open and aware and obedient to what God is doing in the moment or not doing. It's why I say weird things like this is a morning of encounter. I'm just trying to get the mind to be aware that there's a possibility of presence here in the subject experience of your Christianity. We're to be open and aware and obedient, whether he says something or whether he doesn't say anything. All of this is a life in the Spirit. All of it. All of it is a life in the Spirit, which brings us to probably the greatest difficulty of life in the Spirit. Most of us, whenever we hear life in the Spirit, we associate that with all the feel-goods and the fire and the goosebumps. In other words, it's all about the heat and the flash. And by this, we know that we're in the Spirit. Particular traditions of Christianity would say, you're not in the Spirit unless you're speaking in tongues. And, I mean, we, we're, we're Pentecostal charismatics around here, but we have, a, we have a more balanced view. We have this broader view because we're also contemplative. So let me get to that. The modern church, the problem in the modern church, in my humble opinion, having been part of the modern church, having led the modern church for over two decades now, the modern church is driven by emotionalism, we have an inability to be still. We have an allergic reaction to silence. We freak out, even here at Neighbors. We'll, I mean, I feel weird if, if Joshua just lets the piano go quiet, and it's just quiet in a room for people, I'm just like, <gasps> we have this allergic reaction to silence. We are unwilling to lament. The modern church has an over-realized victory mentality that does not make room for boredom and sadness and quiet and non-movement and suffering. And the modern church has no category for a God who says no to us. No, I'm not going to meet you where you're demanding I meet you. I'm your creator. A creature will never be the equal with the creator. This is the deep, raw roots of Christian practice, Christian worship. And the modern church for revival and renewal to come, she must once again yield ever more deeply. The reality is, for most of us, especially if you're more than four or five years into the game with Jesus, our lived experiences are oftentimes dry, tasteless, monotonous, kind of boring, trucking through Leviticus like, God, get me through this. I have no, I have no clue why they're killing animals like this. I don't get this. What is, what is this? A lot of times our Christianity and our prayer lives are not eventful. And so then we slowly begin to wonder, is this working? Where's the fire? Where's all the feels? Where's the goosebumps? Where's the spirit of God? 
Now remember, I opened, I set this up early. I opened by saying the very desire for the Spirit is a mark of a life in the Spirit. That's really counterintuitive, right? That idea has its roots in the contemplative traditions of Christianity, ancient, ancient tributaries of our brothers and sisters going back to the desert mothers and fathers. The contemplative traditions, they actually embrace this very counterintuitive process across a whole spectrum of Christian experience, feel goods and no feels at all as part of life in the spirit. And they actually, the contemplatives provide a huge amount of encouragement for struggling Christians. The contemplatives in 2013, when I was introduced to that world of reading and thought, saved my Christianity. That's not an exaggeration. What the contemplatives observed through history in their discipleship circles is that in the earliest stages of Christian experience, Everything seems so amazing. God feels real. The Bible is just alive. You read it. You, I remember being a brand new baby Christian. Having, I remember asking, what is a Thessalonian? I don't know. It's so amazing, whatever it is. It's, you're just alive. Everything is just so vibrant. You show up at worship, and as soon as the first note is struck, you're just on the floor, bawling your eyes out. God, I love you so much. We get all the feels in prayer. We're so on fire for Jesus that we're the obnoxious person that if we can just get five minutes with somebody, we're trying to slip Jesus in and invite them to church. Do, do any of you remember this? Am I the only one? Oh, good. So a couple of you were like that. Were, none of you guys were on fire for Jesus? Okay. Let's see where this takes us then. But as we mature, as we mature, the embodied sensations, they go away. And the fire seems to go away. And the, the word takes a little bit of work. And you got to do a little extra due diligence to figure out what's being said there. And why does it even matter in 2024? All those things, God is beginning to partner with us, but we begin to worry, am I being punished? Have I lost my way? When in fact, we are entering into a very sacred, maturing stage of life in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. God intentionally begins to remove all of the experiential moments of the Christian life, and he does so out of love to purify our faith, to bring us to deeper surrender, and to further open our souls to the contours of his Spirit. Now, most of us in a church like this, most of us with the circles we run in have heard, how, how many of you have heard of St. John of the Cross and the Dark Night of the Soul? Just by a show of hands. Yeah, so, that's amazing. That's an ancient book written by an Italian mystic. And it's like super trendy right now with the contemplative resurgence that's happening in the church. But in my humble opinion, John of the Cross and the Dark Night of the Soul is actually being misapplied by this current generation of, of, of novice contemplatives. Prior to Dark Knight, John wrote a, a prequel to that book. It was a book that he had written prior to The Dark Knight of the Soul. And it was a book called uh, The Ascent to Mount Carmel. It is heavy reading. It took me two years to slog my way through that thing. And it is, it is brutal. The Dark Knight uh, the, the was preceded by The Ascent to Mount Carmel. And in that, in that book, John was detailing what he called The Dark Knight of the Senses. The Dark Knight of the Senses. Note, not The Dark Knight of the Soul. There's a preceding stage of Christian purgation and practice. Let me get to that. Dark night of the senses that precedes dark night of the soul that then precedes dark night of the spirit. Okay? So John taught in the ascent of Mount Carmel. He was actually teaching spiritual directors and his discipleship family. He taught that God purifies or purges the soul. And he does so through a process of intentional letting go of losses, of circumstantial hardship, and detachment training the soul to detach. He trained his community that maturity in belief would actually embrace dryness, embrace a sense of loss, embrace boredom, 
Those were invitations to a deeper life in the spirit through an intensified and purified trust and surrender. So you're slogging through Leviticus. John would say, well done. And you're waiting for the fire to fall because you just read about the sacrifices of, you know, Nadab and Abihu. They just died and fire fell. You're like, where's the fire, God? And it doesn't come. And you're like, I don't get it. John would say in that moment, now trust. Trust that the nothingness is God's presence. Counterintuitive? Totally. Life in the spirit is sometimes a tedious, most times very strenuous process of purgation. Purgation. We are being purged of trust in our feelings, trust in our sights and sounds, and the systems of the world and fleshy Christianity. And yes, friends, purgation is as gross and as bad as it sounds. It can get pretty gnarly. If you're ever purging something, like, you know, having that moment where you're sick at the toilet and you're just bleh, it's awful. Nobody wants to enter into a purgation process. But afterwards, you're like, oh, I, feel, I feel better. God uses a process of purgation in the spirit to slowly purify our bodies and our minds and our souls. And what he's doing is he is reorienting our identities from building on the standards of the world or trusting in our flesh for righteousness or relying solely on our emotional or sensational experiences to define union with God. Now hear this, hear this. I am convinced that so much of this generation that's deconstructing, they're actually at the beginning stages of purgation. And they just, you maybe here this morning are like, where's God? Am I being punished? Why do I even keep doing it? Why am I at church? I don't get anything out of it. It's so boring. You are in a very sacred, sacred space. And you need a guide. You need someone like John of the Cross or a pastor on a Sunday morning reading John of the Cross to you to come along and say, welcome. Well done. Now surrender to the boredom as a gift. Surrender to the dryness as a gift. Surrender to the objective reality that life in the Spirit is upon you and with you and for you. And let him purge you of trusting in emotions or flesh or desires or worldly attachments because he does intend to contour your soul to have greater capacity for more subjective experience in the Spirit. Most of what folks are experiencing right now in this moment today in the modern church is the beginning stages of the dark night of the senses. Dark night of the soul takes you into these deep places where God is saying, and now even your spiritual components of trust, the metaphysical places, I want you to not trust in those. And honestly, I've tried reading John of the Cross and Dark Night of the Spirit, and I'm obviously nowhere near that stage because I have no clue what the guy is saying. I don't understand what he means. It is something basically along the lines of, you have been so released from the world and your flesh and even trying to see God that all you can see is God. I mean, they speak in these sort of Yoda backwards ways by the time you get to that material. And he's like, I, I don't know. Instagram's easier, <laughs> you know? And so the Dark Night of the Senses, most of you in this room, are being invited to join the process of the Spirit and turn from emotionalism, inability to lament, victory mentality, constant noise, into the silence and solitude to meet who you are in Christ in that place. So life in the Spirit, as we cap off and come to communion, life in the Spirit for you and I this morning, it's an active surrender and trust in the objective truths given to us in the Bible. And we not only know this intellectually as information given to us, but this morning I pray that we all want to taste it more fully, more completely. 
And in the initial stages of transformation, everything is absolutely so sweet. And if you're in that season right now and you've come back into a season where the Bible's, so many of you have talked to me coming to this church and you're telling me these stories of like, yeah, I'm being reawakened to the gospel. And I think I'm coming to realize what God's love is for the very first time in my life. And I've been in church my whole life. Embrace that sweetness. Drink that bottle of honey down to the dregs. Take it all in because God is being so kind to you. He's just... He's gently giving you uh, nourishment for the journey. He's giving you strength for the journey because eventually he's going to say, now, kiddo, I want you to begin to mature and I want you to begin to trust me more deeply. I want you to begin to trust that the sweetness may at times begin to taste a little bit bitter, a little bit boring, but the bitter taste is as much the spirit as the sweetness is. That's still the spirit. The dryness is still the spirit. And most of you, especially me, need to hear this. The unmet expectations and unanswered prayers are not God's abandonment. The unmet expectations and unanswered prayers are your father drawing you close to lean back. He is circumstantially training you to detach from self-destroying, dangerous, impulsive flesh desires with Jesus' name stamped on them. He's detaching you from the world and its ways Friends, we are no longer part of this world. We are children of the king and his kingdom. And so he loves us enough to begin to circumstantially work good through removing those worldly things. And there are times, according to the reading I've been doing for 15 years now, where God will open up the floodgates. And you'll have these visions once again, these beatific moments, as it's called in the ancient liturgies, of seeing God and contemplating and being freshly alive. Your affections in the Reformed world, your affections are stirred. You're in love. Your heartbeat is beating again. But until that time, we prepare and we open our souls day by day, moment by moment, Sunday teaching by Sunday teaching, community group by community group, fast by fast, resistance by resistance. We open our souls through scripture reading and fasting and prayer and feasting and solitude, community, silence, Sabbath, going and serving the poor, visiting people in the jails, going to visit the sick, the things that Jesus told us to do. We go and we do it. And as we go and do it, we surrender what we experience as a gift from God to form our souls in faith and trust. We do not determine when or if anything happens subjectively. We trust and surrender. That's life in the Spirit. That is going to be a lifelong endeavor for us. And one final word, and we'll come to communion. The further we progress, the slower and more incremental the change and the more challenging the waiting and the, and the surrendering becomes. In other words, this doesn't get easier. Listen to me, kiddos. It doesn't get easier. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with some young Christians over these last years where I've just wanted, they're, they're, they're sitting at the table with me, tears in their eyes. I just want it to get easier. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's not going to get easier. Why? Because he's, he's training us to bear the weight of the cosmos, to rule and reign alongside Jesus, just like Jesus would. And so if you think of this like in the world of athletics, in the world of elite athletics, like elite runners will spend months, months dialing in their training protocols and their nutrition and their sleep habits and their recovery techniques to shave off a couple tenths of a second of their PRs. Elite lifters, Olympic lifters, they will practice and practice and practice and practice with technique and nutrition, the finest details for years to add five kilos, a few pounds to their best lifts. In the early stages of athletics, we make huge progress in short amount of time. Huge progress. If you go from the couch to slowly training, within a year you would be amazed at how much progress you can make. 
But the more fit you get, the practices yield less immediate change. But at the elite levels, the prize is so much greater because what? Now you're competing for national championships and world records and gold medals and glory. St. Paul understood that the longer you and I live life in the spirit, the slower and more incremental the change will be. For you seasoned saints in here, if you feel like it's really slowed down to a grind, welcome. Well done. Stay the course. Steady on. Practice your technique. Eat right. For just a few more little incremental steps of, I think I was just a skosh more patient with my wife in that conversation after 22 years of marriage. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a bunch of pride. (laughs) (laughs) Resistance. Struggle. Wrestling, boredom, dryness, unmet expectations, unanswered prayers, pressing into the objective reality of life in the Spirit and surrendering our subjective experience to whatever God wills, there is no greater reward. There is no greater life. There's no gold medal at the end of this for us. There is Christ-likeness in eternity. And this is why St. Paul would say, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. Now, Paul was gnarly. Paul was, Paul, Paul was just gnarly. He, he was definitely not the modern sort of psychotherapeutic uh, cultural mantra. He, he, he literally is like, no, I strike a blow to my body. And I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Friends, the sun is burning brighter than a trillion, trillion nuclear furnaces right now of love and adoration and care and tenderness to your soul. You are uncondemnable in Christ. That is the objective reality. Your subjective responsibility is to train and dial in and attune to that on a day-in, day-out basis. And the more you mature, the more he will say, you're trusting in that, not Christ. You're trusting in that, not Jesus. You're building your identity on this, not my love. You're building your world and your kingdom, not my kingdom in this world. And that slow, incremental practice process through practice, practice, practice will purge us and have its way with us so that one day when that final moment comes, And this body is finally giving way to the repercussions of sin and death. We will resurrect. And Paul says all these strange things. We will have been trained. Our bodies and minds and souls will have been trained in such a way that we'll be so like Jesus, that we'll be so pure and perfect, that we'll be able to tend to creation as we were always intended to. We'll be kind and benevolent and patient and long-suffering and gentle and full of love and full of joy. And we'll judge angels all these strange things that eternity has for us. You're being trained for it right now. So each passing day, each passing month, each passing year, another weight gets put onto the weight. Another weight. And as you mature and and some of you will end up getting married, another weight gets added. And then kids. And then you take on these responsibilities. And slowly but surely, you're being trained to rule right alongside Jesus for his glory. And And I can assure you, at least today in my body, I feel it with every fiber of my being for an eternal good that, an eternal good that is so worth the race. It is so worth the race. Father, for my friends and family in this room, 
for the saint who struggles this day, I pray that this objective truth of the uncondemnability of their life would quicken their hearts. And I ask God that we all together would taste the sweetness of Jesus Christ and his love, that the honey would pour over our souls and bodies like liquid sunshine, bringing us to rest. For the one Lord who's quit resisting on the verge of tapping out, may they be reminded that they've entered that sacred maturing process. For the one whose Christianity is this emotionally driven up and down, for me, Lord, my emotionally driven up and down Christianity, I just stabilized this morning in the presence of God through communion. So bless us now as we sing and as we take communion together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.